0: The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. I think sometimes in life you have those, those moments where you look back and you think, I wonder what people thought of me back then. Um, I had one of those yesterday, I was flying, in, flying out here, and just after the flight lifted off from Toronto, a flight attendant came by and did one of those things with a glass of ginger ale, and I was sitting in seat 1A. And this glass of ginger ale landed smack on my way. So I had to jump up in front of the whole plane. And I was very, anyways. So I thought, I wonder what people are thinking right now. Do they know that a flight attendant just spilled an entire glass of ginger ale on my lap? Or do they think I maybe did something terrible? Um, You look back and wonder what people thought of you. Um, Looking back at my younger years, especially my teenage years, I've looked back at times and wondered if people thought I was what people like to call a mama's boy. And I say that because I grew up in a stable home, I grew up with believing parents, I loved and respected them both, but I loved my mom and I was very close to her. I was closer to my mother than to my father. And I think if that was true when I was a child, it became even more pronounced as I became a teenager. In those years, I mean... be honest, I was a boy. I was a teenage boy who just needed his mom. Now, something interesting has happened in the Christian world in the last little while. The Christian world has told us that boys need their dads, right? We know that. There's a very important relationship between boys and their fathers. Boys need their dads to model masculinity, to model love and affection, the, the kind of love and affection they ought to have for a woman. They need to teach their boys the kind of life skills they'll need. So there's tons of books about how to be a good dad to your sons, lots of preaching, teaching how to be a dad to boys. We also know from the, the Christian world that girls need their dads, right? There's been a lot of attention on that and daddy dates and stuff like that, right? Make sure you're taking your girls out. Make sure you're spending time with them. You, you need to be affectionate with your daughters. Teach them what good affection is, that kind of stuff, Right? Just model purity to your daughters and your relationship with them. Um, Also, dad, you've got to hold the boys at bay and uh, eventually talk to and allow that one to uh, woo your daughter, all of that. There's lots of emphasis out there on being a good dad to daughters. So dad to sons, dad to daughters. There's also lots about girls, how they need their moms, right? They need their moms to model femininity, to teach and train them to be women, to model patience, to model wisdom, to model Proverbs 31, right? Like, we we know that. There's lots of emphasis on that. What about the relationship of a mother to her son? A mother to her older son, even, teenage boys. I don't think there's been really any attention given to that. Very, very little when we compare it to the other three relationships. There's lots of books, blogs, sermon illustrations, all of that for those other relationships. What about boys and their moms? I think that's really been neglected among Christians. Now, why is that? I think that's because we've got this notion that a boy who's close to his mom is maybe a warning sign that maybe a boy who's closer to mom than, than he is to dad, maybe there's, there's a potential problem there. I'm convinced that boys need their moms. I'm convinced that young men need their moms, that they really benefit from that special relationship. In many ways, when I was growing up, I I wanted to be like my mom. Now, I know in our cultural climate, that can sound really weird, right? We might attach all sorts of stuff to that. I loved my mom. I respected her. I wanted to have that kind of godly character. And so, for a long time, I was very, very close to her. Now, she was, through my teenage years, my primary counselor, a really trusted companion who helped me navigate those, those years and all the trials and all the the troubles that come with them. Now, it's not that I didn't have peer friends. I did. I had friends. But none of those people influenced me as much as my mother did. I had a dad who was involved and around, but he didn't influence me as much as my mom did. I had godly pastors and elders who influenced me, but not as much as my mother did. And this wasn't through some formal program of discipleship. She wasn't deliberate in terms of we're going through this book together or stuff like that. It just came to time spent as we lived life together. So I would often get home from school, and she would be working up towards making dinner, and I would just hang out in the kitchen with her, and we would just talk. Or she'd say, I'm going to the grocery store. So I'd jump in the car with her, and I'd go along. And it was in in those times that I came to depend on her wisdom, and where she helped me interpret my thoughts, helped me interpret my feelings. And we talked about, you know, girls and God and everything else in between. And so in many ways, I wanted to be like her, to model my my life and character after her. And then, you know, eventually I met Aileen, and then um, there was this, that friendship with my mom necessarily began to decline in some ways, and I began to grow in friendship with Aileen. So this relationship I had enjoyed with the most important woman in my childhood, it just sort of gave way to the relationship I would have with the most important woman in my adulthood. But I think that first relationship in many ways has prepared me for the second. So I'm convinced that the relationship between a boy and his mother is a unique one. I think it's a precious one, but it is one that we attach some suspicion to, right? As if there is a warning there, as if really what we're concerned about, if we're honest about it, is that a boy who's close to his mom is either going to be effeminate or homosexual, right? Which is why we have names for those. We call them mama's boys or pansies or sissies or something like that, right? We have this fear of what it might mean if a boy is too close to his mom. I don't think it should be that way. And, you know, you can find some. You can find uh, James Dobson has written a little bit about this. Kevin Lehman has written a little bit about this. Of course, you can go to the Bible and find Timothy, whose main influences in his childhood were his mother and grandmother and Solomon warning his sons, don't depart from your mother's teaching. You see, Jacob was close to Rebecca and so on. Um, but I started finding these neat connections elsewhere. I love to read history, church history. love to read biography. And as I was reading biographies, I started to notice this connection that some of our great Christian heroes, if you will, were men who were influenced in their younger years, not primarily by their father, but by their mother. I started to notice this connection, so I decided I wanted to explore it. I just wanted to find examples. And so I got in touch with all the church historians I could find, and I just started asking around and started doing more and more reading, and I found a lot of them. And so just in the few minutes we have here, I want to tell you about just a few of them. A few great men whose primary influence in their younger years was their mother. And then just pull out some of the themes I discovered through this research. And my hope—I mean, really, my big hope—is that we can destigmatize that relationship, that we can allow moms and their sons to be close without attaching necessary negativity to things. Um, I want to give moms a new, a new kind of confidence, a new kind of challenge that they really can have that impact in the life of their sons. And maybe, I mean, single moms—I think uh, need to hear this too, right? You don't necessarily need to have a dad, you can still raise boys who are masculine and godly, even if you are the, the closest, most trusted companion through their younger years. Because we can find these godly moms who shaped the men, who in turn shaped our world. So let me just tell you about some of the themes I found. I, I ended up researching 11 different moms and their sons, um, all of whom you've probably heard of, or almost all of whom you've heard of. And uh, just went looking for themes. What is it? How did she impact her son? What's a theme we should draw out of that? And one of the very prominent ones was the theme, uh, the the importance of laying that early foundation. That the mom has a chance to lay an early foundation of godly character and godly doctrine in the life of her sons. And some of these boys I researched, they would later wander makes it appropriate for an event like this. Like they, some of them wandered, but they were never able to outrun that foundation. That foundation never disappeared. So let's look at John Newton briefly as a good example of this. So John Newton, August 4th, 1725, he was born in London. He was the son of Elizabeth and John. Elizabeth had been born only 20 years earlier in Middlesex, England. She was the, the daughter of a guy who, of all things, his job was to make mathematical instruments, We don't know a whole lot about her younger years, except that she received a good education and that she was raised as a non-conformist, which means they were, had broken away from the Anglican church. They weren't conforming to the Anglican church, so a Protestant. Uh, Her husband, she married young. Her husband was a sea captain, so he was gone for months, sometimes years at a time. He sailed the Mediterranean. And from reading, it sounds like he was also like a regular old Von Trapp in that he like brought the maritime conventions into his home. He wanted his, his home to be run like a, a boat. By the time John Newton was born, um, Elizabeth and her husband, they were part of this solid gospel-preaching church. It seems that Elizabeth, I mean, she definitely was a, a true believer who loved the Lord. It seems that her husband proved over time that he wasn't really. He was just... Um, you know, part of a church, but not truly um, believing on the Lord. But because John's dad was gone so much, the main task of parenting fell to Elizabeth. And here John later described her as a dissenter, a pious woman who was of a weak, consumptive habit and loved retirement. So if I'm reading that properly, she had tuberculosis, and she was often bedridden because of it. She was chronically ill and often really unable to function. Now, she had tuberculosis, which was a major killer in that time. So she knew that she might not have a long time. So she really committed herself to teaching and training her son. She determined she would make the the most of the time she had available. And so she took on that role of teacher. He, He did very well. He said, when I was four years old, I could read as well as I can now and could likewise repeat the answers to the questions in the assembly's shorter catechism with the proofs and all of Dr. Watts' smaller catechism and his children's hymns. So there's the shorter catechism from the Presbyterian tradition, then there's Isaac Watts wrote a a catechism for children, and he wrote a bunch of hymns for children. Elizabeth had stocked her son's mind with all of that. So she was consistently training her son in sound, reformed, Theology. John said, as I was her only child, she made it the chief business and pleasure of her life to instruct me and bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So she saw that her son was really sharp, really clever, and she started praying actually that God would call him into ministry. She just thought there was, I see something there where he ought to be a pastor. Uh, unfortunately, she wouldn't live to see that day. By 1732, her disease had uh, advanced, her symptoms had become grave, and she was um, sent away from John for a while and unfortunately died. She was just 27 years old. So John Newton's mom died when he was just two weeks short of his seventh birthday. Okay. The next year, dad returns home. So he's been months here without a parent in the picture at all. His dad returns home, learns that his wife has died, and immediately remarries. Um, That stepmother was at first a good stepmother, but then began to have children of her own and really just kind of shoved John aside. So he became distant and rebellious. By age 11, dad decided it was time to head to sea. So from age 11, he was aboard a ship working. And the rest, as they say, is history, right? So if you know anything about John Newton, you know that he would rebel against God. He would commit these horrifying atrocities. He would be aboard a ship that was many ships that were participating in the transatlantic slave trade. So they'd run from England down the coast of Africa, across to the Americas, and back in that triangular trade. Uh, He would do awful things, some of which he would speak about, some of which he would only hint at, but um, abusive and horrible. But he would later experience God's grace and become a preacher and a hymn writer and an abolitionist and would be very very involved in the abolition of the slave trade and of course you know his story from the hymn amazing grace so when he looked back on his life this incredible life that he lived um, from the 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 depths of depravity to being one of the great christians of his age he gave credit to his mom because he knew that his eventual salvation was absolutely inseparable from the training that he had received from her, the training he had received on her knee and the the many, many prayers she had made on his behalf. So here's what he said. Though in process of time I sinned away all the advantages of these early impressions, yet they were for a great while a restraint upon me, they returned again And again, those teachings, they returned again and again. And it was very long before I could wholly shake them off. And when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found a great benefit from the recollection of them. So he said his mom had stored my memory, which was then very retentive, with many valuable pieces, chapters, and portions of Scripture, with catechisms, hymns, and poems. So even though Elizabeth was was gravely ill for the entirety of her son's life, she didn't allow that condition to keep her from taking that role in his life and fulfilling her duty in his life. And I think really the opposite was true. She understood that she was sick. She understood she may not have a lot of time with him. And so she, would, she made it her business to lay this early foundation in the life of her son. She used what strength she had to express love for her son in the best way taught him to know God's existence, to know God's holiness, to understand God's demands on his life. She taught him songs that would remain in his heart all his life, scripture that would remain in, his, remain in his mind all his life. She taught him to honor the Bible, to turn to it for spiritual knowledge and strength. She taught him the good news of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And really, she modeled to him a sweet submission to God's will and this deep piety, right, this deep love for God that worked itself out in action. All of that before he even turned seven. One of John Newton's biographers in a recent biography said, the spiritual lessons the boy had learned at his mother's knee were never forgotten. They became the foundation for Newton's eventual conversion and his Christian commitment. So John Newton, a man we love to talk about, a man we as Christians love to celebrate, like we're proud to be on John Newton's team, right? To, to pull him in as an example of what God can do, and an example of a man who fought so hard for the abolition of slavery, all of that. We cannot understand him apart from his mother, who had just six years or seven years with her son. That foundation she laid in that short time was never Fully undermined, and so from her and from others I looked at as well, we can see that a mom has a unique role in the early life of her son in teaching and training, in, in teaching him his first theology, teaching him his first, giving him his first example of someone who's living for the Lord. All that in seven years. So if she could do that in seven years. Imagine what you can do in eighteen or. I guess today is more like 28 or 30 years um, before your son flies the nest. So that was a theme that came up again and again. And actually, one of the absolutely dominant themes I saw, and this is partly because of the, the time I was uh, researching, but the Shorter Catechism. I can't tell you how often that came up, that moms were teaching their sons, their, all their children, the Shorter Catechism, teaching them questions and answers that would essentially lay that foundation of systematic theology. Um, something to think about at a time when catechisms, I mean, they're making a little bit of a resurgence now, but it's a very, very important tool for teaching our kids. I'm glad to say my mom taught me the shorter catechism. Second theme that I pulled out was, um, so it's the first was laying the foundation. The second theme that came up in my studies was the the value, the importance of normalcy. So there's, there's some women that you can read about who had remarkable accomplishments of their own, right? Um, I was recently in England visiting sites related to Selena Hastings, who was Countess of Huntingdon. So she married young, her husband died and left her a fortune, and she decided to use that for the furtherance of the gospel. Um, first as a Wesleyan and later as a Calvinistic Methodist. She was using that money so, so when you think about the, the Wesleys traveling around and you think of Whitfield, the Great Revival, those guys were out doing all the preaching. Back home was Selina Huntington. She was writing the checks, right? She was keeping them going. She was building churches. She was printing hymn books. She was actually like, doing all of this work behind the scenes to carry this out. So she, I mean, she's got a nice big biography of her. She's a, a great person in her own right in terms of one who really made a direct impact. But as I was looking at great men and their godly moms. I found so many who really disappeared from history. They, they didn't make that mark on their own. It seems that in some ways, God's plan for them was not for them to be really prominent in their own right, but to, to raise up sons who would be prominent. And again, I didn't got in the future to think about uh, great women and their godly moms, great women and their, there's a lot that can be done, great women and their godly dads, there's lots of these connections we can draw. Just as I was looking at this, what I didn't find was a lot of women who were prominent and then had prominent sons, you know, in in the eyes of, of the wider world. And I think John Piper is a good example of this, drawing to the present day a little bit more, Piper being born to Ruth Piper. She herself had been born in 1918, Pennsylvania, going back to the early part of last century, made a very serious commitment to the Lord, and already by her young teens was actively pursuing the Lord. Uh, she met this guy named Bill, and they fell in love. And um, he was also a believer from a very young age. Um, when he was 15, interesting, Piper's, John Piper's dad, when he was 15, had this spiritual stirring. Something happened in him, and he just had to preach about it. He had to tell others about it. So he just decided to preach. And when he did, the first time he preached, 10 people came to the Lord. And he just realized in that moment, like, this is what I'm meant to do. And so he decided to give his life to evangelism. And so um, Bill and Ruth were married in 1938, moved to Cleveland, Tennessee, where they uh, were both part of Bob Jones College, which at the time was in Tennessee. Um, Bill graduated and became this traveling evangelist. Eventually the university moved, or the uh, college moved to Greenville. So they moved with it. John Piper, born January 11, 1946, which if I get it right means he was like one of the absolute first baby boomers, right? Didn't the baby boom start in 1946? And he was born January 11. So he's like the the front edge of the baby boomer generation. Now, his dad was an evangelist. So you think about this. John Piper growing up, his dad was around one-third of the time. Two-thirds of the time he was traveling. So when John Piper turned 18 he had seen his dad for six years, and his dad had been gone for 12 years. That's a remarkable thing, traveling about 250 days a year, Um, often for 10 days or two weeks at a time. Um, So that meant Ruth, John's mom, was, I mean, she was doing it all, right? She was working double duty. So she had to manage rental properties and pay bills and care for the home and property and work a part-time job to earn some extra income, all of that fell to her. So later in a tribute he wrote, John Piper said this, she taught me how to cut the grass and splice electric cord and pull Bermuda grass by the roots and paint the eaves and shine the dining room table at the chamois and drive a car and keep french fries from getting soggy in the cooking oil. She helped me with maps and geography and showed me how to do a bibliography and work up a science project on static electricity and believed that algebra too was possible. She dealt with the contractors when we added a basement and more than once put her hand to the shovel. It never occurred to me there was anything she couldn't do. So he looked back at his mom as this woman who seemed to be just omnicompetent, right? The jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none kind of person. And that really left him, I think, this legacy of hard work. So when dad was away, when Bill was away, she was the one who led the family and ran the home and gathered the kids to do devotions, to pray together, and then Bill would get back and she would start to seed all that, just kind of this natural ebb and flow. Now he would round up the family and he would lead, he would initiate discipline. So you think about John Piper being a leader of complementarianism, and this is what he saw modeled in his home, right? This sort of ebb and flow between here's mom doing it all, then when dad gets back, I can see the things that he seeds to her, the ways that he... He now leads, and she joyfully allows him to lead that way. It's amazing how we're marked by our parents, marked by our background. It would, he'd later say, It never occurred to me that leadership and submission had anything to do with superiority and inferiority. It didn't have to do with muscles and skill either. It was not a matter of capabilities and competencies. Now, here's what I find interesting. His mom was no scholar, no theologian. Her faith was real and deep, but it sounds like very, very simple. So her kids would say they've got no recollection of her ever reading any book but the Bible, and they have no recollection of her quoting any book of the Bible other than Proverbs. So John has always thought that just the the incredible burden she bore with her husband being gone two-thirds of the time, that incredible burden raising a family and doing everything just drove her to the simple wisdom of proverbs and she would just keep mining and mining and mining proverbs to apply it to her life and the life of her kids yet no one had a deeper spiritual influence on him through his childhood it's appropriate that when he was six years old and became a believer she was there to to pray with him so you know that John Piper then later felt this call to ministry. He had a terrifying fear of public speaking. He overcame that, Um, got his education all the time, remained in close contact with his mom and uh, rose to prominence in the Christian world, especially the reformed Christian world through desiring God, through conferences, through his um, well-known sermon at the Passion Conference in 2000, et cetera, really came on the scene. People began to look up to him. He's a great theologian. You know, he's been very, very important in the resurgence of Calvinistic theology and so on. Very important theologian. His primary influence in life and faith was, in his words, not very much of a theologian. So he described his mom. She didn't give him the content of his theology then. Right? I mean, he doesn't look up to his mom Said say, everything I know I learned from her. He did not say that. But he does say... She shaped the way I approach life. Her example showed me how to live life. That was her her willingness to bear any burden through her her faith that was simple but like unshakable, right? It was a simple faith, but a tenacious one. Through her very ordinary life, she made this big, big impact on her son. So when he was candidating for Bethlehem Baptist Church, as a, a pastoral candidate, he said this. She stamped me more than anybody in the world. There's just no doubt about it. How did she stamp them? She stamped them through just being so very normal. right? She wasn't extraordinary, I think, in any sense of the term. He doesn't claim she was extraordinary in any way. She didn't claim to be extraordinary in any way. She was just a really good mom. She was just a really good, committed wife and mother. I don't know, I think that's hugely comforting. Isn't it? Hugely challenging. You don't need every, every mom, every woman to, to change the world or to be somebody, to have a profile, to, to, in order to have an impact on their kids. It's enough to serve your family, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Oh, this little story after uh, Ruth died, she was killed in a really tragic car accident. Um, They were tidying up her stuff, and John found one of her folders, and it was labeled unfinished business, of all things. So he got the folder, and he opened it, and it was empty. (laughs) And he thought, that's a perfect symbol of her life, right? He said, mother, while she lived, was a finisher of tasks. She left no business behind that was left unfinished because of sloth or mismanagement. What she left undone, God chose to leave undone, not mother. So she did normal tasks with a normal person, and God blessed her richly. Now, I want to be careful. It's not like her only legacy in the world is John Piper, right? We don't want to say that. But as we're looking at a guy like Piper, we would think, we'd find lots of influences in his life, right? You'd say, that guy's read a lot of this person. He studied a lot of this theologian. Yet he says who shaped him the absolute most in his life was mom. I think that's amazing. I find that hugely comforting. I find that just such a joy. I mean, we as parents are doing such, what seems like such menial stuff in the lives of our kids, right? We're doing stuff that seems to make so little impact. And we can, we can buy into this idea that unless I have this great profile, unless I'm really changing the world, what have I actually done? And yet the vast majority of us just kind of live in the weeds, you know, we are unseen, unnoticed, and yet we can make this tremendous impact on our kids. Whether they go on to have a worldwide ministry, whether they go on to be as invisible as we are, I think it's an absolute joy to know how God works. Let me give you one more example. And this by far was the most prominent theme, is the, the value of a mother's prayer. Moms who prayed and or fasted for their kids. So we could look at Charles Spurgeon. We could look at St. Augustine. uh, Christopher Yuan, if you know that name, I did one on him and his mom's incredible, incredible prayers for her son that he would be saved from this life of depravity. But let's look at Hudson Taylor. And uh, I chose him because I think he's got an interesting example of wandering in his life. So Hudson Taylor... Um, whom you probably know as a great missionary to China, born 1832 in England, first child of James and Amelia. So James was a chemist. He had wanted to be a doctor. Family couldn't pay for it, so he settled for pharmacology. Uh, He had been raised in a Christian home, became a uh, committed Christian at a young age, loved scripture, loved theology, good start. And he met this young woman named Amelia, who had also come from a Christian home, Uh, Raised in very impoverished conditions. She was had to start acting as a governess when she was just 16 like full-time employment Just helping to provide for the family They this couple fell in love she was still very young before they could settle down he had to establish himself So there's this long long wait where they were attached to one another and engaged to one another Finally got married in 1831 in the time between he had been identified as a guy who could preach, and so the church was calling him now to do itinerant ministry on Sunday. So we would spend six days working at a shop healing bodies, one day going out preaching healing souls. Um, shortly after, 13 months after they were married, their first child came along. He was named James, but he was always called Hudson, after his mother's maiden name. And uh, the next child was Amelia Junior, who if you'll read about Hudson Taylor's life, you'll see that his sister played a huge role in his life, primarily through prayer. Um, Hudson Taylor didn't know this until much later, but his parents had actually, after he was born, they dedicated him to missionary work in China. How about that? They never told him that until he was a missionary in China. But uh, they had just desired that. their son. So in some way, I saw this a number of times too, which is weird. I mean, maybe lots of parents do this and only some ever get found out. But parents dedicating their children to something and then the child ending up on that later in life. Who knows? Um, But James, so Hudson Taylor's father, was a a loving father. He, He disciplined his children well. He instructed them well. But he was maybe too severe in his discipline. And he was also super, super frugal. He He seemed to think that forcing austerity onto people was a way of generating piety within them, you know, make them godly by withholding stuff. Um, Amelia was very different. She was very kind and very warm and very engaging, had a really good sense of humor. She was well-respected. She taught children's church or church for the girls, uh, Bible classes for girls. She had an open home, welcomed people in. Even though they didn't have much money, she would share what she had and so on. And uh, both parents were really involved in teaching their kids uh, scripture, prayer, and singing hymns, primarily. So the kids grew up in this kind, good, God-fearing home. And young Hudson, really from an early age, had this desire, this interest in spiritual things, started even thinking about mission work. But then he went through this, this period of crisis. So when he was 15 years old, his dad decided Hudson had to get a job. And he wanted him to gain a little bit more experience of life. So he had him work in a bank. And so here's young Hudson Taylor working in a bank. And he starts to see people for whom the love of money is a very big idol. And he starts to see what money can do, what money can provide. And he starts finding himself really desirous of that. He, He starts to realize, I want money. I love money. I want to live to accumulate money. I want the pleasures that money can bring me. Um, his spiritual life, not surprisingly, began to languish. He was really starting to, to throw things aside. Also, the people in the bank were just teaching him to be bad. You know, he started swearing, which we probably don't think much of. But in his eyes and in the culture at that time, was considered a very, very grievous sin. Just reading about one of the very first native Canadian preachers. So, uh, after the gospel came to my part of the world, this man named, English name was Peter Jones, came to the Lord. And he said... What the white men did was brought swearing. We had in our culture no way, in our world, no way of, of expressing disgust to God like that. And you people came and taught me to shake my fist at God in that way. So swearing isn't just, you know, saying bad words. People are seeing it as a way of expressing a clear kind of defiance toward the Lord, which may be hard for us to get when everyone around us is constantly saying, oh my God, and that stuff, right? We're just surrounded by it. Um, we forget just how severe that sin was. So he was in this deep, deep spiritual crisis, Hudson was. um, Feels this pull toward money, this pull away from the Lord, finding himself really enjoying swearing, doing bad stuff, just enjoying the things of the world. Meanwhile, Dad is being, you know, a bit of a goober. He's being a little bit overbearing and... um, little bit too strict with a guy who's getting older and and working and all that and so he's now rebelling against his dad a little bit as well so here's where mom steps in mom gets him in a way dad doesn't which i think is maybe the case with me as well just mom gets him she she's very kind right she decides okay i love i love dad but he's just not handling this all that well so what am i going to do i'm just going to love this kid i'm just going to be very gentle with this kid I need to be very patient toward this kid. So she decided, you know, I'll I'll, I'll tell him truth. And I'll counsel him as he needs counseling. But mostly, I'm going to pray for him. I'm just going to commit to pray for this boy. And so she, I mean, what did she not do? She, she wasn't going to nag him into the kingdom, right? And I think that's such a temptation at times. You see your kids running and you just want to, this is so important. How can you not turn to Christ? And so you can be overbearing, you can... Uh, You can nag, you can beg. She said, I'm gonna pray this guy into the kingdom. And uh, so she prayed and prayed for him. An interesting thing happened, she decided to take this short holiday. Uh, She was away from the family for a little bit, a couple weeks, and just decided, I've got this opportunity, I'm gonna pray all the more in this time. There's one day that she just knew she had to pray that day, just felt this deep conviction that she was gonna pray for her son until she had this sense of assurance that God would save him. I mean, imagine committing to that, because you don't know that that sense of assurance is going to come. So she just locked herself away in a room, and she got on her knees, and she prayed and prayed. For hours she pleaded that God would save Hudson. And then suddenly she just thought, God's answered my prayer. She just, somehow, it came to her mind or to her heart that God had answered her prayer. So she stopped praying for Hudson, stopped praying, pleading for Hudson, just started praising God in prayer. Well, sure enough, Hudson had been at home, having a bad day, sort of moping and bored and discontent, wandering around the house, decided to look for something to read. So he went into his dad's library and started pulling books off the shelf, and nothing was interesting, and found this little pamphlet called Poor Richard. And he read the story. Just a, it was like a tract. He read the story and read the words, is this? the finished work of Christ of all that pamphlet said, he came to the words, the finished work of Christ. And somehow through those words, the gospel connected. Just something clicked. He understood the work of Christ is finished. I don't need to add anything to it. It's all been done. All I need to do is receive. All I need to do is believe. So he read the finished work of Christ. All the little fragments of sentences. (laughs) The finished work of Christ, he read it, he understood it, he fell to his knees, and asked the Lord to forgive him right then and there. A few days later, mom's coming home, she opens the door, and uh, he says, I've got something I need to tell you. And she says, I know what it is. You've given yourself to the Lord. And just explain them that for days she had been rejoicing that God had saved her son, even though she hadn't actually heard it from anyone yet. She just knew. And of course, his life was forever transformed. He committed his life to being a missionary, trained as a doctor. He began to preach at least, uh, at last he departed for China, 1853. And the history of um, Christian mission and really the history of China can't really be understood apart from Hudson Taylor, a country where now there are literally millions of believers. And he was among the very first and definitely the greatest of all the missionaries who took the gospel there. When he left for China, his mom was there. Listen to this. This is his description of their parting. He's heading off to China. And, I mean, look, you can jump in a plane and be in China in 12 hours, right? I mean, this was months of travel. Very unlikely they would ever see each other again. My beloved, now sainted mother had come over to Liverpool to see me off. Never shall I forget that day, nor how she went with me into the cabin that was to be my home for nearly six long months. With a mother's loving hand, she smoothed the little bed. She sat by my side and joined in the last hymn we should sing together before parting. We knelt down and she prayed, the last mother's prayer I was to hear before leaving for China. Then notice was given that we must separate, and we had to say goodbye, never expecting to meet on earth again. For my sake, she restrained her feeling as much as possible. We parted, and she went ashore, giving me her blessing. I stood alone on deck, and she followed the ship as we moved toward the dock gates. As we passed through the gates and the separation really commenced, never shall I forget the cry of anguish rung from that mother's heart. It went through me like a knife. I never knew so fully until then what God so loved the world meant. And I'm quite sure my precious mother learned more of the love of God for the perishing in that one hour than in all her life before. Amazing. He went to the mission field and even then he and his mom were in close contact. He would be encouraging her. She would be encouraging him. God be with you and bless you, my own dear, dear mother, and give you so to realize the preciousness of Jesus, that you may wish for nothing but to know him, even in the fellowship of his sufferings. Spent 51 years in China, founded the China Inland Mission, now known as as OMF International. And again, hundreds of missionaries would follow millions of people would eventually come to the Lord. Do we trace that back to Hudson? I mean, yeah. We trace it first to his mom, right? Who prayed and prayed. We've got to give credit to the power of a praying mother. We as Christians need to be sure we're giving credit to this mom who prayed and pleaded with the Lord to save her son. Another great example is Christopher Yuan, uh, whose mother turned this unused shower into a prayer closet and spent months and years on her knees in there, praying and fasting until God rescued Christopher from this, from this life of total debauchery. You read about uh, Charles Spurgeon, whose mom pleaded for his soul, and him hearing her prayers was so important. So again, of all the themes of the 11 different people, so often it was mom's prayers that that son would later say, that give credit to my mom for that all right so i could go on but let's apply it like this first we don't need to look askance at a boy who's close to his mom we don't have to look askance at a young man even an older man who's close to his mom okay there's every reason for moms to pursue their boys to befriend their boys to teach and train them to to expect that mom will make this indelible mark on their faith right so we've got to destigmatize this I get books all the time. I get these books about dads, take your girls out on dates. Moms, take your boys out. Take them out for dinner. My mom did that often, and I loved, I craved that time with her. My dad took me out too. He took me to ball games. We did that stuff. But man, those moments where it's just the two of us together make a difference in in the life of your kids. And then I say this to parents all the time. If you're doing errands alone, you're doing it wrong. Ask one of your kids, "Come along. I'm going to Costco. Come, jump in the car with me, and we'll go." I mean, they might not want to. they may not be able to. Invite your kids. There's so much more. I think the, the majority of what happens in the lives of our kids happens in those moments, not in the we're going off for a special father-son retreat. I mean, those things are good, too. Most of it happens when you're driving to Costco together. You're wandering through life, you're just encountering, you're living life together. God works through those moments. So let's, let's allow and invite moms. Make that impact in the life of your sons. Don't think that falls entirely to dad. Don't think it's going to make your boy effeminate or turn him into a homosexual if you're spending time with your son, okay? Mom, you, you can have that impact in the life of your son. I've got 11 stories that can prove it. Um, and then as well, I think just this, as, as we kind of draw some applications, there are not a lot of these great men in the world, right? I mean, we look back at some of those heroes, but I mean, of, of the total population and the total Christian population, how many would we say are these, these great people, these Christian heroes? How many have a biography written about them? Not very many, right? There aren't that many people who really shape the Christian faith, they really change the world in any significant way. The, the vast majority are very, very ordinary. And that's great right? That's amazing. God bless ordinary Christians. It's All any of us should aspire to is just be ordinary, to be content to live a life that's unseen and unnoticed. We've got, we're living before the Lord, right? We don't need to be seen by men. And so uh, the great majority of God's work on this earth is carried out by very ordinary people, but if we can find these stories of those great men who are shaped by godly moms and how many very ordinary men people who are here and here and in your church how many of those people have been so deeply impacted by a godly mom one of history's great preachers i'm sure in my early youth no teaching ever made such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother one of the greatest evangelists ever I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. One of the great theologians. To our mother, my brother and myself under God, oh, absolutely everything. One of the great defenders of the faith against liberalism. My mother spoke to me in those dark hours when the lamp burned dim, when he was about to throw it all away, when I thought that faith was gone and shipwreck had been made of my soul. Christ, she used to say, keeps firmer hold on us than we keep on him. So what these great men say could be echoed, I think, by a million other men, a million ordinary men, and I myself can echo them, since God blessed me with a godly mom. So let's let the moms of these few great men point us to the great crowds of mom who've made this massive impact on this legion of very ordinary people who are quietly carrying out God's great plan for this world. Praise and thanks to him. We've got, I think, a couple minutes left before we need to split up. So, if there's any questions I could take on, I'd be glad to attempt to answer them. And if not, you're free to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um not that are coming to mind right now. And that wasn't always drawn out as explicitly um in certain eras. I mean most people are sick most of the time too, right? So there's definitely weakness. But I'm not thinking of any others that were quite like that. that sickness. you read that Yeah. Um, Well, I'm sure it would have, I mean, there's so much bound up, and that dad wasn't around either, right? So, I know there were some other Christians involved in his life, other people who helped caring. Um, There might be another one, Um, Moody's mom was, um, so DL Moody's mom was, I think, sick some of the time. She was also um, widowed at a very young age, and she raised the family on her own in abject poverty and I think was sometimes quite ill as well. So she might be another one who is similar and an amazing story. I thought of speaking about her today as well. And there's a man who not just in his childhood, but he, was ta- he would talk about even in the years of his ministry, he couldn't wait to get home so he could hang out with mom. Um, like he just loved his mom and relied on her. Um, Machen, Gresham Machen, like all through his adulthood, was, he, was, he remained single um, through his life and had a lot of uh, confidence in his mom, a lot of trust in his mom. And uh, it's interesting, when I started putting these out, there's a very prominent theologian out there who uh, accused me of um, pandering to mama's boys or something. So this whole idea that a man can be very impacted by moms, it still doesn't sit well with some people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I actually have. There's a, a... I, I compiled these short biographies into a book called *Devoted*, that came out a couple months ago. Um, I think the subtitle is *Great Men and Their Godly Moms*. So, it's on, I, I wrote articles about each one of them. You can find them on my site. Then those were edited, improved, and put into a booklet. And what I had is a, uh, a friend who's a, a women's speaker and writer. I had her write a reflection on each one to try, and, and then had two women write up uh, reflection questions as well. So I thought I can write the little biography, but I'm not as confident. Uh, instructing women on in how to apply this to their own lives, to their own lives. So I had uh, a couple of um, women write that up. So I think it's a helpful resource that way. So I've heard my books aren't here at the at the uh, book table, so you probably won't find it here. But it's it's like, yeah, it's on Amazon. Yep. Any other questions? Anything else? Yeah. 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 Um, I think raising our children to the Lord um, is raising them to function well in this world, in doing whatever it is the Lord calls them to. I don't think we can know that because people aren't qualified to to pastor it. Through their raising or through their knowledge or through their gifts or through their abilities, they're raised to to pastor through their character. And that's something that, I mean, we can influence their character and we can, we can pray toward that. But, um, you know, my son is starting into seminary next year and I'm tremendously proud of that. But I'm telling him even now, if you want to get into anything else, I will you can serve God equally in pastoral ministry and plumbing. Those are not really different. They're both just using your gifts and using your your desires to serve the Lord. So um, as I see people, as I was reading about people who had raised their kids to something, I don't think they told the kids that. I don't think they said, I'm raising you to be a pastor. I think that was something they left between them and the Lord um, so they could free their kids to do whatever God called them to. As, As Protestants, you know, downstream from... The Reformation, we have to uh, agree that all vocation is good before the Lord. Um, there's, no, there's nothing intrinsically better about a life in ministry, a life in pastoral ministry. That's one way for, for some people, but you can serve the Lord equally in any, any life. So yeah, we want to raise our kids to the Lord, but I wouldn't say that means we're raising them to the ministry. Those are I think that's conflating two things. when their sons become adults? Yeah, I actually did um, a fair bit of writing on the fifth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother, and I did that specifically looking at it from the perspective of adults. How do we honor our parents? That's a tricky relationship, and then reversing it as well, right? Influencing um, men who are grown, um, and maybe perhaps even more so when they're married and there's... uh, another woman in their life. So, yeah, I think just being very, very, <laughs> being very, very godly. Um, honestly, we've got to believe in the power of prayer, right? That there are times to, to speak and appeal to our, our grown sons, but there's, there's never a wrong time to appeal to the Lord on their behalf and just really, really having confidence in that. So, you know, there's some, some grown men who are very glad to have mom being very very involved, being very directly impacted by her. And you would see that in some of the, the people, D.L. Moody and Machen and others, where Mom was involved all through their lives, and that was, that was good. Um, for others, I think Mom has to be very willing to, to pull back in that impact and now hand that to, to someone else. So I think it would be very, very difficult to let go of that and entrust her son to uh, another woman. Um, that doesn't mean the prayer has to stop and the real deep, deep confidence that that prayer really, really does matter. So I really think that it has to change so much and that, that dying to self that comes as you... I mean, I, I haven't talked to my mom enough about this, but I mean, we were very good friends. And then one day this girl, Aileen, shows up in my life and it's like I just forgot about my mom. And my younger sister moved to college at that exact same time. So I think she probably died inside in that time. I'm looking at it through adult eyes. Now that I've got an 18-year-old son, you know, that just like all that, that relationship and affection we had for one another as friends. I mean, isn't that the joy of, of your kids growing up? Because you're not just a parent anymore. You befriend your kids, right? Like, you know, I'd hang out with this person even if he wasn't my kid. Like, this is just a good person. And then one day this girl comes along and I'm like, you know, all about this girl. So I think that was probably very, very hard on her, but I think she just gave that to the Lord and then just determined to pray for us all the more. And um, she continues to pray for us and for our kids now on a very constant basis. Anything else? Yeah. 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 Well, one of the things, okay, so we've got this weird um, new sexual mores going on in the society around us where, you know, boys might be girls and girls might be boys and all of that. And that's obviously very, very destructive um, when you're telling, I mean, I just saw this video recently of a teacher telling her students, I know you think you're a boy, but you might actually be a girl, that kind of stuff, right? Okay, so that's happening, and that's terrible, but that's coming on the back of us having these really rigid, here's what it means to be masculine, and here's what it means to be feminine, right? And masculinity, boys don't cry, and boys don't feel, they just do, and that kind of thing. So there, um, if there's benefit coming in through this new Sexual nonsense. I think the good part of it is we're understanding that we just the way we look at boys and girls has been too rigid um, in terms of the way uh, what it means to be masculine, what it means to be feminine. And so I'm hoping we can have more patience and more um, respect for boys who are perhaps well close to mom, or boys who um, feel <laughs> a little bit more than others. You know, just. Um, not such uh, stereotyped understandings of what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl in terms of the way you interact with others, the way you um, deal with events in life, etc. So, um, yeah, I don't know what to do except to um, ultimately just point people to Jesus Christ, who was angry when it was right to be angry, who was sad when it was right to be sad, who wept at the grave of his friend, who gives us the ultimate example of a, a man who was the ultimate man who lived a very godly, I mean, completely godly life, and yet maybe didn't fit our, our rigid stereotypes all that well. So, um, but yeah, helping our boys through that, I think, is important. All right, I think our time is up, but I'll stick around if, you've, if you're uh, introverted and didn't want to put your hand up or anything else. we we'll be up here. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.